in the air. Brito back at the wall. Adios, Pelota! That's the type of manager that I'd like to be, which is the same every day. They know what they're going to get. They're going to get energy. They're going to get accountability. They're going to get structure, and they're going to get support. And I'm going to bring those things to the dugout in the clubhouse regularly. It takes hard work, uh, and it takes humility, taking one step forward at a time, making one good baseball move after another. And I really feel like that's how we're going to get where we hope and intend to go. You're listening to Bags and Brisby on Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 57 of the Bags and Brisby podcast. This is the Mike Broadway edition of the Bags and Brisby podcast. Number 57. Everyone remembers Mike Broadway wore 57. He's he's the most famous person to wear it, right? Right, Bags? I think so. Was that also Randy Messenger's number or do I have that wrong? I think you do have it wrong, unless you're talking about his his incredibly successful career in Japan. He might have worn 57 there. I, I don't know. Um, but what I'm looking at, so let's see, Doug Henry. I'm looking at Eugenio Velez, but only in 2008. Uh, I'm looking at Chad Godin, uh, Matt Reynolds, Dan Slania, Brian Morris. Wow. And uh, But Jonathan Sanchez, I think, is probably the actual answer to who is the most famous number 57. Threw a no-hitter, beat Matt Latos in game 162, um, hit a triple off him as well. Triple, Um, Guaranteed victory over the Padres, got scolded for it by everybody in the clubhouse, and then went and did it. Jonathan Sanchez. Underrated component, uh, pitching well enough to keep the Giants in the game uh, against the Braves. You know, absolutely really good in that that game. So, uh, good giant, good giant. Uh, but we're here to talk about another good giant, and I'm writing about him. By the time you're listening to this, it, it might have already been published, so please read my words. Uh, but I'm writing about Juan Uribe today, and in my estimation, he's a good giant. Would you say Juan Uribe has earned the title good giant? Um, absolutely. I think that he was sort of the first of the many, many uh, very, very fortunate non-roster minor league free agents that they signed who turned into key components. It was like he was the first bit of scrap that the Robin brought back to build a, <laughs> build a, a warming nest of scraps that, that turned into the incubator for a... Um, how, how, how far am I going to take this metaphor? Um, Keep going. We got a half an hour. And then, and then the World Series hatched and chirped and ate some worms, and then there were two more after that. Um, and now we have a flock of memories. Um, and yeah. and they're, they're little dinosaurs. Don't forget that. They are. Birds are dinosaurs. They're just yeah. modern-day dinosaurs. But exactly. no, Uribe, was, he was so much fun. And I think that we didn't see his full personality until he went to L.A. and his outfits started getting more wild. <laughs> and he started smoking cigars on his way out the door every day. And, and I mean, if you see some of the, the, the photos that have been tweeted about him over the years, uh, it's, like, it's like he sort of knew he had this burgeoning legend and he embraced it. Um, and we just got to see the first sort of flush of that when he was with the Giants. I w- one of my favorite Juan Uribe memories is that he would just douse himself with cologne um, before he would go out to take batting practice and call it his hit spray. And uh, and and he loved he loved it that we all thought that he was like completely freaking weird. Um, <laughs> but 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 man, did he come up with some big home runs in some big spots? Um, you know, none bigger than the one against the Phillies, but. Uh, but yeah, Juan Uribe, good giant, good giant. Now, the reason I'm writing about him, however, is because he is one of the rare people where you can say Juan Uribe, good Dodger. And Dodgers fans love him. 
And so yeah. I'm, I'm in the middle of a search. I'm right now actively searching for good giants and good Dodgers, people who live in these dual realities. And you, you, obviously, it's not a surprise. There aren't a lot of them. Because if you're thinking like Oral Hershiser, eh, Giants fans, that's not, he's, you know, he had a solid enough year in 1998 where he, he kept the Giants in games. But it's not like everyone's like, yep, he's good in our book now. He's still very much Oral Hershiser. I believe uh, that Brandon Crawford seated him 16 in his 64 Giants uh, poll. There's probably yeah. a reason. <laughs> uh, who did he get? Bumgarner in the first round or Lincecum? I forget, but it was sort something of like up. that. Yeah. The, the seeding was an underrated component of that whole tournament. It really because, was. You really know, was. he had AJ Przinsky up against Buster Posey. That's funny. That is that is objectively funny. Um, so, but then you've got guys who I think were good Dodgers, good Giants, like Jason Schmidt. But Dodgers fans don't necessarily agree that Jason Schmidt was a good Dodger. I think he's a great Dodger, best Dodger I ever saw. Um, yeah. But that's from the eye of the beholder. So when you get down to it, it's like Juan Uribe. Uh, it, Jeff Kent's a weird case because he did well in both places, but like both sides are suspicious of him because of his other attachment. Uh, Dusty Baker's an interesting case because you have the player and the manager. Oh, very good. You know, uh, Brett Butler, I think, is one you brought up when I, when I told you about this idea. Uh, but Brett Butler also, when he left the Giants, he was he had like those quotes. I need to find them, but it's like, oh, it was always meant to be a Dodger. This is my home. This is beautiful. I love it here. Forget that other stuff. And, and Giants fans soured on him a little bit. Um, but yeah, not a ton of good Giant, good Dodger combos. And I do recall that there was some backlash initially when Uribe left for the Dodgers. Sure. Um, I mean, there were some boos for him very early on. Um, not to the level of booze that there were for Brian Wilson, but right. uh, because you could tell that he was basically going full on WWF wrestling heel when he uh, went to the Dodgers. <laughs> he, he he reveled in it. He loved it. Right. Um, but Uribe, you think, hey, man, he's just going for a little more guaranteed money. And um, but I, I think that the reason that that there was that that backlash on Uribe initially was that it had been reported at the time that he basically turned down more money from the, the Giants to go to the Dodgers, which wasn't true. Um, I think that basically, uh, the, 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 from what I understand, that the Giants had an opportunity to match the offer and didn't exactly move so swiftly on it. And then he's like, well, that's fine. I, I'm going where I want to go. So so he left. But yeah, um, but yeah there's there, there are certainly like Sergio Romo. How, how where would he uh, fall into your uh, your analysis? Yeah, I just don't think Dodgers fans are especially enamored of him. I, I he did okay, or you know, it's it's not like he's offensive to a lot of Dodgers fans. It's not like he is uh, Oral Hershiser coming to the Giants, but he didn't necessarily make his mark in L.A. And so I'm looking for the people who made their mark in both places. Like okay. you can go the other way, where Dave Roberts was with the Giants. I don't know if he made his mark with the Giants. He was sort of uh, miscast as a center fielder when he first started. Uh, he kind of he was injured and just drifted away. But, you know, he is he is a giant. He just never made his mark with the Giants. I'm looking for guys like Juan Uribe. You talk to a, a Giants fan and a Dodgers fan talking about Juan Uribe can high five and say, we love that guy. Yeah. And that it's just not, you're not doing that with Corey Snyder or Daryl Strawberry. I don't know. It's Maybe this is a little too esoteric for a half-hour podcast. So this is where I segue into the actual theme of the podcast, which is just rivalries in general. Oh, and I thought you were going to say Corey Snyder. We're just going to talk about Corey Snyder for the next 25 minutes. <laughs> we're just going to talk about that Sports Illustrated cover from 1986 where it had Joe Carter and Corey Snyder on it, and they're like, Indians are on Jacoby. the ride. Yeah, Jacoby was, is going to win the MVP. 
Very famous Sports Illustrated cover. The the headline was Indian Uprising, which woof. Um, but also like it just the idea of it's going to be Corey Snyder and Joe Carter leading the Indians out of the problem, you know, out of the the dark place. Uh, it didn't quite happen that way, you know. I actually have no. a, a big long story in the can for that Game 7 of the World Series. I was, I think, 1,500 words into it. I had the Indians win uh, story. A a lot of it was pre-written, and a lot of it had to do with that Sports Illustrated cover. I was just sort of, you know, worming my way around it, uh, but they didn't win. No. Now, the sad thing about the Indians is you have to specify which Game 7 you're talking about because (laughs) they've had a couple of them, uh, the one in 1997 as well. Um, this is but, true. This uh, is true. I'm talking about the one against the Cubs. I was uh, right. so terrified that I would, you know, seize up and panic that I actually pre-wrote a good chunk of both sides if they won. But that was easy to do because you're thinking, man, what would it be like if the freaking Cubs won? Right. And then you could just riff on it because it it was like science fiction and the same thing for the Indians. Uh, but you grew up a Cubs fan. So this is also another good segue. Uh, did you hate the Cardinals growing up? Yes. Yeah. And I... Okay. I, I I have to say, in a professional manner, very professionally, I still hate the Cardinals um, and Cardinals fans. Professionally, of course, but I do hate Cardinals fans. I dislike the fact that a player could hit a sacrifice fly and they have to have a curtain call for it. I mean, really? I, there's there's more curtain calls. They, they don't mean anything when you have nine of them a game. They're the best fans in baseball, I say, I do not think Cardinal fans are the best fans in baseball. Um, See, this is this this is the meme where it's the the muscular handshake where you've got Giants fans and Cubs fans. Yeah, hating right. the Cardinals is is right at the top of that meme. And so, like you know, mo- most of my my grandparents are from um, Iowa, so it was very much Cardinal Cub mixed territory. So I think that that was and there's a lot of those areas within downstate Illinois or or Iowa or or other areas um, where, where you had a lot of Cardinal and Cub fans. So I think because you, um, I sort of grew up you know, knowing that there was supposed to be a conflict uh, between Cardinal and Cub fans, I kind of embraced it. And then when I went to college and went to Northwestern, my roommate was a guy named Mark Schreiber, who is so St. Louis, uh, grew up his whole life in St. Louis. He, he, is, he works for the St. Louis Sports Commission. He does a fantastic job. Uh, one of the main things he does is put on the Musial uh, Sportsmanship Awards, which are awesome, and and I think that uh, is is something we really need in this day and age uh, to to hear all the good, heartwarming aspects of sports. Um, and uh, but he is Mr. St. Louis. I mean, he came out of the womb working for the Chamber of Commerce. So, <laughs> so I remember there was one day I was hanging upside down from the top bunk. Uh, um, uh, of the bunk beds in our dorm room. I think I was like stretching my neck or my shoulders or something. And I said, hey, this this is kind of nice. I, I'm kind of enjoying this. And he said, yeah, I'll bet the, the NL Central standings look a lot better from that point of view. And mm. he reminds me of that almost every time I talk to him. <laughs> and it was the sickest burn. And I'm like, I, I got to give that to you. That That's really, really good. So... But, uh, but yeah, we love to still needle each other about the Cubs and Cardinals to this day. Professionally, of course. Professionally. 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 <clears throat> yeah. uh, for me, growing up, and I had such blinkers on as a Bay Area sports fan, I didn't realize that the Cubs and Cardinals had a rivalry until I was, like, in college. And it was always Red Sox-Yankees, sure. Uh, Dodgers-Giants, of course. I grew up in it. Uh, but the, the Cubs and Cardinals, to me, feels like it's almost like... It, 
a forgotten rivalry in a little bit if you're not in the middle of it. I maybe you don't have that perspective because you grew up in it. But to me, I like I didn't even realize, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh wow, these two sides hate each other. Yeah, it's it's more real than like the Padres and Mariners who somehow became interleague rivals and play <laughs> each other eight million times a year for no reason. But yeah, there, I mean, there's there's a lot of of sort of uh, the same mythology that there would be with any rivalry. There's the Brock for Brolio trade. I mean, there's mm. there's things that still get brought up on either side. Um, you know, even I, who was it? Was it uh, Dexter Fowler? I think he went to the Cardinals and said something yeah. about the Cubs, and now Cub fans hate him. But yeah, there's uh, there's been a lot of of that over the years about guys you know jumping ship and going from one team to the other. There are probably a very few players who would be considered beloved Cubs and Cardinals, just like there are very few on your list of Dodgers and Giants. I, I would imagine maybe Ryan Terrio. He won a World Series ring with the Cardinals and and uh, had a nice career with the Cubs. He might be one. And plus, you know, who doesn't love Ryan Terrio? Um, <laughs> another snappy dresser, by the way. But yeah, it's it's uh, there is some, usually some backlash when when a Cub player goes to the Cardinals or or vice versa. And now I'm thinking about Johnny Damon. Like, is Johnny Damon? Does he still get his Yankees card in? Red Sox card. I would assume he, he has one or the other, but I do. That's got to be a little bit of a messy one. Um, but you know, in in a more in a broader sense, so you've got Yankees, Red Sox, you have Cubs, Cardinals, you have Giants, Dodgers. Those are the three main rivalries. You can squeak in like a Mets, Phillies when both teams are going well. Like there are other ones you can sort of shoehorn in if you need to, but those are the three main. And I think where I'm going with this is that there should be more because having a rivalry is freaking awesome. As a fan, it's awesome to have a team where they can be lousy, like take the 1993 Dodgers, a very bad team. But when they got into that final series against the Giants, they had plans and they just, you know, they, they got their fork and knife and they were pounding the table. They had their little lobster bib around and they were ready. They were ready to spoil the Giants season. And that's what they did. And that sort of thing, maybe I could have picked a happier example for Giants fans, but that sort of thing is is invaluable because even in the bad season, when you have the Giants and they're stinking, but the Dodgers come into town and maybe they sweep the Dodgers or take two out of three, that's good baseball. That's fun baseball. And I love that part of baseball and rivalries are to me good yeah maybe you know the diamondbacks and rockies we could start something by okay dinger and uh what's the bobcat's name uh um, baxter. baxter they they have to have a fight to the literal death and yes. one of them will die and uh, and then that's going to uh, imbue that rivalry with so much hatred that that'll become a good rivalry too i don't know i honestly think if you decapitate uh, a dinger like Rockies fans would be like oh thank god yeah oh thank oh thank you baxter our hidden hero I, I think that also you could have Clint Hurdle manage every team, and if, if if you could make that possible, because it's amazing how much everyone hated the Pirates over the last like five or six years, even right down to the guys in the Arizona Fall League after Joey Bart got hit by a Pirates prospect, their whole team was ready to fight, and they had to pull all the Pirates players out of that game. Uh, because oh, yeah. the, Joey Bart's team, the Sacramento, or not Sacramento, the Scottsdale Scorpions, they were ready for pirate blood. And uh, and you look at like the Reds and Pirates over the years, whether it's That's Johnny true. Cueto or Brandon Phillips or uh, Yasiel Puig trying to fight the whole team, um, uh, you know, which turned into an awesome, awesome Twitter meme uh, that I somehow bent, <laughs> bent into Hank Schulman yelling at clouds and scooters. Um but no, the the pirates fought with everybody the last few years, and uh, and it's it's that's remarkable. I would say that the pirates had a rivalry with everyone they played, and a lot of that was probably Clint Hurdle. And there is 
there are temporary rivalries. There are rivalries that are going on because of where the two teams are in their their spot in the success cycle. The Giants and Phillies had a little bit of a rivalry. I remember those games in 2011 where those meant more than just a typical, hey, this team's good, we're good. Like Those were the start of something in, in 2011, in the summer of 2011. You really wanted the Giants to crush the Phillies and vice versa. And so that is there, and then it sort of drifts away when both teams start to stink. And you'll get that in, you know, I'm sure that uh, Twins and Indians right now, if you're a Twins fan, you're thinking about the Indians a lot, and and the Indians fans are thinking about the Twins a lot, but that's going to ebb and flow. And when I look at all 30 teams and the teams that don't have a rivalry, the only one I can point at and say, Watch out for this one over the next couple of decades is Astros Rangers because oh, they're yeah. in the same division, they're in the same state. It might be a state that cares a little bit more about football, but that has the potential to be just a fantastic rivalry. Everything else, I think, is spoken for. I think the Astros with everybody, once they can start playing games <laughs> again, is going to be a good rivalry. True. I mean, there's a lot of people who have a lot of access to grind. And what about the A's? I mean, Mike Fires is the one who blew the lid off this whole thing. True. And and you've got the A's playing uh, in the same division with the Astros, too. I think there's, uh, yeah, there's some, um, there, there's going to be some banging going on, for sure. <laughs> Growing up. The Cubs-Cardinals rivalry, did that mean a lot to you? Or was it something you were aware of? Or was it something like you circled those games and, and that's I need I needed to be present for those games and extra vocal about them? Um, I, you know, to some extent, although, you know, really, during that same era, the Cardinals and Giants had some pretty good yes. uh, tete-a-tetes. I mean, the, we, we always look at that Will Clark-Ozzie uh, Smith uh, fight, which... Um, yeah. I mean that that one's iconic. I think anyone who's a Giants fan of our age or older uh, knows about that. Um, uh, so, you know, I yeah, it's I, I definitely did sort of take those games more seriously. Um, but at the same time, um, most of those years the standings did look better if I were hanging upside down. So right. you try you try not to make too much of them because you know you don't want to have to give the other side too much credit. But um, but yeah, it, it is kind of funny how the Cardinals, uh, the Cardinals and Giants had their little moment around that time as well. But not only did they have that little moment around that time, it sort of stuck, and it it maybe it went away for a little bit in the, in the '90s. But now you're talking about 2002. They had the uh, the NLCS, and then you had the Giants in, in 2012 and 2014. Like there is still there are embers that never went away. And when it's the Cardinals in the NLCS, I think both sides have that feeling of, oh, gosh, you know, I don't want to lose to them. It, yeah. it, it's a little bit more exciting. There's a little bit more. You know, you've got Matt Holiday barrel rolling into Marco Scudero. You have these little moments of of just sort of like like the knife was twisted. And the Giants have been excellently expert at, at twisting the knife over the last couple of decades. But before that, the Cardinals, you know, handed them their lunch. So there is something there. And it's something that has sort of gone on for longer than you would expect. It's almost like a Niners Cowboys to where it should have ended a long time ago, but people still really do care about it. Yeah. And you know what? That that 2002 NLCS, I, we, we forget about how, how good that NLCS was, especially that clincher. I yeah. mean, to even even with the cast of characters who was in that final moment, the pitcher 
Steve Klein, who later became a giant. <laughs> the catcher, Mike Matheny, who later became a giant, who later became a frustrating Cardinals manager beaten by the Giants. Um, David Bell uh, scores the, the winning run, be, later becomes farm director, and now he's getting ejected every other Tuesday. As In fact, <laughs> without games, I think he's still getting ejected. As, as yeah, he got ejected the, yesterday. Yesterday, yeah, in fact. Um, uh, <laughs> refused to bring in the newspaper off the porch and got ejected. Um so it, it was a great series, and that was a great game. One thing I remember from that game is Matt Morris just dealt. I mean, he really, yeah. really pitched a great game. Um, but uh, the Giants were able to see it through. And, and you know, walk-offs to win the pennant, they don't always have to be home runs. They're fun when they are. But uh, right. Kenny, Lo- Kenny Lofton, that was a moment kind of frozen in time and a pretty cool moment for the franchise then. I remember there was, this is before everyone had broadband connections or, or a lot of people had broadband connections and it took like an hour to download a video. Do you remember that? Where like yes. before YouTube, before this, it, if you wanted a video, you had to wait and, and wait and wait and wait. And someone back then made a video of that uh, uh, pennant winning experience that, from 2002. And I was watching it, I think in 2005 or, or something like that. And it was the first time, because I had always remembered 2002 as being Scott Spezio, as being the comeback, the rally monkey, you know, just all these these horrible memories because of how it ended. And that was the first time that I was able to look back and go, yeah, that was awesome. That <laughs> NLCS was awesome. They literally walked off and, and they were going to the World Series and they had a chance to win it. And that was awesome awesome and Kenny Lofton you know he, he's going to be in Giants lore because of it and sometimes it takes a little bit of perspective to remember yeah winning the pennant actually isn't bad it's pretty darn good I mean really when you think about it um, in terms of the history of the Giants you know ballpark at 24 Willie Mays Plaza um, we haven't seen a World Series clinched there um, right. they've all three been on the road so you could kind of argue that the two you know walk-off hits to win pennants have been the two you know, biggest championship moments in that ballpark. I mean, you've obviously had World Series wins. You've had Pablo hitting three homers in game one of a World Series. That that probably is bigger. But uh, but yeah, I mean, how, how many ballparks are open for 20 years and and uh, and don't have, aren't the stage for moments like that? And, and the Giants have had a fairly ridiculous amount of, of good things happen in, uh, in two decades at their ballpark. It's someone should write a book about all the good things. Maybe multiple books. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, but I was. Uh, uh, that, that's a plug for for Andy's book. Please buy Andy's books. They're good books. Um, I I've always remembered a quote, and I thought it was Bruce Jenkins. And I've asked Bruce about, "Hey, do you remember writing this?" And he said, "No." And I, I got <laughs> I got Peter Hartlob to look into it because he's he's the uh, like a archivist of of the Chronicle. Uh, is it archivist or archivist? I've never said that word out loud. Uh, you know, gosh, um, archival manager, archival. Let's, yeah, let's go with. Well, gosh, no, that doesn't solve it either. How about master of the archives? Master and Lord of the Archives at the Chronicle. I asked Peter Hartlob, I said, hey, can you find this quote? And he came back and said, no, I can't find anything like it. So I might have invented it, which, hey, it's pretty good. But when the, when Pac Bell Park opened, so the Giants have this new ballpark. It was a column, and I swear it was Bruce Jenkins, and he said, you know, the ballpark looks perfect. All you need to do is stuff it with memories. And it, it rang true to me. It's like, yeah, you know, over the next hundred years, what could happen in here? 
And then it's like you have Bonds setting the single season home run record. You have Bonds setting the career home run record. You have the Giants walking off to win a pennant. You have Tim Lincecum coming up and winning two Cy Youngs. You have JT Snow's home run. You have uh, you have the the Ishikawa. You have all these things are starting to happen. Perfect you know, Scudero game. looking up in the sky. And this is 20 years. 20 years you're able to, to stuff a, a, a century's worth of memories into a ballpark. That It's a Hard to do, and it gets my respect. Darn it! So so much that that in in your little speech right there, you left out Matt Cain's perfect game, and that's that tells you the yeah. story really, yeah. just how many great things have happened there. And that's twenty years, and and I mean, I don't know. I really want to find that article because it's driving me it's driven me nuts because it was such a prophetic sort of thing. Because when you went there, and I was there at opening day. And I had Kevin Elster home run balls fly over my head. And when I walked out, I wasn't thinking, oh, boy, here we go again. Because I was optimistic about the 2000 Giants. But it was also just you're just sort of in a state of shock in a good way. You're looking around and going, are you serious? Like, I was at Candlestick Park six months ago at a baseball game. And right. it was, you know, it was like, I guess September is when the good weather is. But I'm sure it was freezing at some point within the previous eight months. And we get this. This is like, perm- they're not going to take this away. This is not loan. And all that was left is just let's stuff this with as many good memories as, as possible. And they have. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's really good to think about stuff like that, especially now, because we're, we'll get back to that. You know, it's it's yeah. going to take time. It's going to take patience. It's going to take all of us, you know, sort of reinforcing some positive energy every day. But we, we will get back to that. And I think when when we do, we'll probably appreciate it all the more, um, you know, because the, the crack of the bat is supposed to be accompanied by the roar of the crowd. And, um, yeah. you know, so I, I look forward to that. I do. Yeah. And you know what? This has given me uh, an opportunity to reflect and, and think about one of my favorite uh, AT&T Park, Oracle Park, I guess it was Pac Bell at the time, Park memories. And this is one. So we're all watching classic games. And I, I watched Game 7 of 2014 World Series last night. And these are the games that are going to get played. The game that I don't think will get played uh, not without someone listening to this podcast and saying, well, that's a great idea, um, is when Bonds hit his 500th home run. I think you were, that was 2000, and you were covering Angels then, Dodgers then? I would have been covering the the mighty Periwinkle 2000 Anaheim Angels when they were still okay. called the Anaheim Angels, yeah. Okay, so do you remember anything about that game? I mean, I, I'm sure you've read up on it for, for your books and stuff, but like, do you remember the, the context of that game? I, you know, I don't know if I do. I, I remember 600. I definitely remember 660. Um, but those were more when I was on the beat. I do not remember the circumstances of 500, but I do know it came at home, right? I mean, almost yeah. all, all the milestones came at home. So it came at home, and I'm going to mess up some of the details, but it, it was against the Dodgers, and the Giants were, you know, in it. They were sort of clawing their way back into... Um, I think at this point they were all, all the way back and they were, was it 2000? I'm going to screw up a lot of details. All right. So I'm just going to go for what is important to me. And what's important to me is that the home run gave the Giants the lead. It was against Terry Adams and I think it was in the eighth inning. And so it turned a 2-1 game into a 3-2 game. And so just in general, if it's not the 500th home run, that's going to drive fans bananas. It's going to be, you know, one of those home runs that you remember just by virtue of what it did to the game. Uh, but also... There was a huge ceremony because it was Bond's 500th homer, and they stopped the game, 
And it cheesed the Dodgers off. Oh, my goodness, it cheesed the oh, Dodgers off because and, they... And, yep, okay, I remember now. And Terry Adams was the pitcher, and he yes. was really, really ticked off. And he should have been because it's ridiculous. It's a close game. The Dodgers are still trying to win. But the reason I want to watch it, I mean, obviously, I want to watch a replay of that game for several reasons. But one of the reasons, the main reason I want to watch it is because of that top of the ninth. You had Rob Nen trying to save it. And it was Rob Nen against Gary Sheffield. And Gary Sheffield, maybe along with Jeff Bagwell, the scariest hitter to ever live if you're a Giants fan. Just, just there's something about the coiled power of Bagwell and Sheffield. And they generally did well against the Giants. But no hitters scared me more than Bagwell and Sheffield. And especially Sheffield at that time. He was close to at the top of his game. And it was Nen against Sheffield. And the winning or the tying run was in scoring position, I believe. And it was a battle. And I want to watch that battle again. So if anyone's listening who can just sort of jab someone in the ribs at NBC Sports Bay Area, I think that would be a great classic Giants game to revisit. April 17th, 2001. 2001. Yeah. See, that's where I was. I knew it was early. I mean, he hit 70 something home runs that year. So, you know, it's always a, an easy one to pick. But, uh, but yeah, you've you've got a good memory for it. Uh, it was uh, Rob Nen in the ninth with the the Giants ahead three to two, and um, Gary Sheffield struck out swinging to end it. Chris Donalds drew a leadoff walk. Tom Goodwin <laughs> was the pinch runner, and then Goodwin stole second base, and then and got to third on the air. Got to third on the air, right? And then Marquis Grissom grounded out, and then Mark Grudzelanek strikeout swinging. Gary Sheffield strikeout swinging. So yeah, that yeah, was look- that was like uh, Tyler Walker esque in. And uh, squeaking out of there. And that's a nine-pitch strikeout of Sheffield. So you know that there are fouls back to the screen and groans. And I just remembered eating my fingers, not my fingernails, just eating my <laughs> fingers down to the nub. Just, I, that was that was one of the best baseball experiences I ever had. And I, yeah. I'm, But, you know, that kind of goes back to our original idea of rivalry. Like, that wouldn't have been... The same sort of game if it were against the Expos. It wouldn't have been. It would have been a great game if it were even against the Padres. Would have been a great game, a memorable game. But there's something about it, even in April, being the Dodgers and you had Sheffield versus Nen and Bonds hitting the game-winning home run. That meant just a little bit more. So we're pushing for time, but can I tell you a quick 60-second story? Please. Tom, okay, so Tom Goodwin. This jogs my memory because you mentioned Dave Roberts. And yeah. I, I was covering the Dodgers that spring in Vero Beach when Dave Roberts, uh, they had traded for him a minor trade with the Indians where he was blocked for years by Kenny Lofton. Uh, and uh, they brought him to camp and they had Tom Goodwin uh, you know, on a guaranteed contract for like you know four or five million bucks. And Dave Roberts was out there with Maury Wills in the little what they call Maury's pit practicing his drag bunting every day. And the more they saw him, the more they liked him. And uh, there was no way they could carry both Dave Roberts and Tom Goodwin. So with a week to go in spring training, they released Goody. And Mm -hmm. that was a big, big deal. You're handing center field to Dave Roberts over a a guy with a guaranteed contract. And then, of course, what happens, the the Giants scoop up Tom Goodwin, and he's a Giant for for the rest of the year. And he even gets a hit that beats them, I believe, in September with him, with, with the Dodgers paying him at the time to beat to beat them. Um, but that was Dave Roberts's big break. And that was where his major league career really started uh, was to be an everyday player for the first time. And I'll, I'll never forget just what he had to do that spring 
to win people over. And it was just day by day by day. And that's why, to me, spring training will always matter. It's too long. It's ridiculous. Yes, it's a small sample. You can't make a lot of big-time decisions over just you know what you see in spring training. But there are some people who will take advantage of it in a certain way, not just with their physical talents, but just showing you who they are as people. And they'll get you to believe, you know what, this is the right move for us. This guy should be our center fielder. And we're going to, you know, even if this causes us to, to pay some consequences, uh, we're going to move some mountains to make this happen because it's the right thing to do. And that's what Dave Roberts achieved that spring. And, you know, he's got a huge stolen base that helped to win a World Series. And and he's got a career where he's uh, he's looked upon fondly in a lot of different cities. And and now he's a successful major league manager. And, and none of that happens without his sort of force of will in that first spring. So that's that's one of the that's my Dave Roberts story. That's a good one, Ian, and that's actually a good topic for another time. It's just the, the spring trainings that did matter were all of a sudden a guy is thrust into your consciousness like Andres Torres in 2009, like, we got to keep this guy, or uh, Ryan Vogelsong where, you know, he didn't make the team out of spring training, but he sure was on the Giants' radar again when with that, that pop and yeah. fastball that in, in spring. So that is a good topic for another time. Will we remember? Yeah, probably not. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been episode 57 of the Bags and Brisby podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back on Thursday. Thanks so much. <laughs>